Turn in your Bibles with me to Luke 20 for our passage this morning. Luke 20, starting in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Thank you, Mallory. Well, this morning, continue our sermon series in Luke, and we have a little bit to cover uh, this morning. And so I want to begin this morning with a question, and that question is this. If you could ask Jesus any question in the world, what would you ask him? So it's fair game. Nothing's off limits. If you could ask Jesus any question in the world, what would you ask him? For some, that might be a, a decision you're wrestling with, right? Maybe a current decision. Should I do this? Should I do this? Should I do this? You're like, Jesus, can you give me, give me an answer here? For others of you, it might be a Bible verse that has just bothered you forever. 
or a, or a teaching in the Bible, you're like, ah, what's that all about? You know, and I'm not going to bring up examples this morning because uh, I don't want to get emails asking me because I don't know either. Um, for some, it might be, it might have to do with a, a certain experience in your past. You're like, why? Why? What, what was that all about? Why would I have to walk through that? Why do you? Why do you allow that in my life? What? What's going on here? For me, it would have to do with leaves and acorns. Like, why? Like, every fall, like 50 pounds of leaves and 100 pounds, right? Of acorns, and we're like, why? Like, what's the point of all the leaves and all the acorns? And his response would probably be like, you chose the house. Like, it's your, it's your, it's your fault. But, but, I mean, we all have questions, right? I mean, seriously, that's, I think that's probably the only question I have for Jesus. But we all have questions, decisions, past experiences, um, biblical truths, biblical verses that we wrestle with and struggling with, that we have questions for Jesus. Well, within our passage this morning, we're going to see that we're not the only ones who have questions for Jesus. Instead, within our passage this morning, we're going to see that there's different groups of Jewish religious leaders who have questions for Jesus as well. But what we're going to see is their questions are going to be a little bit different than our questions. You see, their questions were motivated by, not, they weren't motivated by, by sincerity or, or honesty Instead, with their questions, they were trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to trick Jesus, trying to stump Jesus. They were trying to get Jesus to say something in his answer to their question that would cause him to incriminate himself or that would cause him to get in trouble with the the Jewish people or that would cause him to reveal that he's a fraud or that he's a false messiah. And so they're asking him all of these questions to try and get him to trip himself and to, trick, to be tricked by them and to cause him to be looked like essentially a false messiah and a fraud. At the same time, though, even though their questions weren't marked by sincerity and, and honesty and were motivated by trickery, At the same time, what we're going to see is that there's a lot that we can learn from the questions that they ask. And there's a whole lot more that we can learn from the answer and the response that Jesus gives to the questions they ask. And the reason that I say that is because they're going to ask some questions about some pretty important topics. And Mallory just read about some of those, right? The government... how we should think about the government, how we should think about church and state and taxes and politics and and all of that, like whether or not we like those things, the reality is those things are important and those things have have an influence and impact our lives in different ways. They ask questions about the resurrection of the dead and like what's the afterlife going to be like and what is life going to be like in the afterlife And questions like that, that the reality is, we're all going to die. We're all going to continue on to live after we die. 
And so questions about the resurrection and the afterlife are, are important and relevant for, for all of us. They're going to ask questions about other things, but, but they're not the only ones who are going to ask questions. Jesus is going to ask questions for them. He's going to ask questions about his identity and who he is and why that matters for their life and why that matters for our life as well. And so then even though these religious leaders are going to come up to Jesus and try and trick him and trip him up with their questions, the questions that they ask and the answer that Jesus gives to their questions is important and relevant for all of us in our lives today. And so here's, here's where we're headed this morning within this passage. You kind of, kind of see this on your handout in those made headings there. We're going to see these, these three tricky questions that the Jewish leaders are going to ask Jesus and that Jesus is going to ask them. And then after they ask these, their questions, then we're going to give, see this one serious warning that Jesus gives in response to the questions that these Jewish religious leaders ask. And so then the first question, when it comes to these three tricky questions that the Jewish leaders ask is this. You see it on your hand out there. It's a question about taxes. So this is specifically what we see in verses 19 through 26 here. Mallory just read those verses, so we're not going to read through every single one of those verses again. But again, the picture that you have here is Jesus has finally made it to Jerusalem. He's come to the temple complex. And within the temple complex, you have this group different groups of Jewish religious leaders lined up one after another, after another, after another, wanting their chance to come to Jesus, ask him the question so they can stump him, make him look bad, incriminate himself, get in trouble with the people, or show himself to be a fraud. And so it's one after another getting their chance to get their swing at Jesus to bring him down and destroy him. And the first question that is asked is you see is by the scribes and the chief priests. And they ask this question there. Look at verse 22. They ask him, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Specifically what they're referring to here is the imperial poll tax that the Roman government instituted. And what the imperial poll tax was, it was basically a census tax or, or a head tax. And the Jews in that day despised that tax. You can imagine they, they hated the, the tax. And one of the reasons they hated the tax is because the tax helped to fund the Roman government. And the second reason that they hated the tax is because the Roman government was oppressing them. And therefore, this tax then symbolized and represented their slavery, their oppression, their submission to Rome. And so they hated it. They, they hated to pay it. So then just think about this, right? Their question then puts Jesus into kind of a pickle, into a dilemma. If Jesus says, yes, I'm going to pay this tax, then he's going to appear to be what? He's going to be a, appear to be pro-Rome. He's going to appear to be a traitor to the people of Israel. And as a result, then the people are going to turn against him. However, on the other hand, if he says, no, I'm not going to pay the tax, then he's going to look like an insurrectionist, one who's committing treason against the Roman government. And the Jewish leaders at that point in time then would have just cause to turn him in and to hand him in. And so Jesus is stuck, like, if I pay the tax, I don't pay. What do, what do, what do, I, what do I say here? 
that no matter what his response is, he's going to be viewed either as a traitor by the Jews or an insurrectionist by Rome. So that's the pickle, the dilemma he finds himself in. So look at his response then there in verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness, so he knew they were trying to trick him. And he said to them, show me a denarius. So a denarius is the equivalent of a full day's wage work uh, for a laborer. And that would have been the, the coin that they would have paid for this poll tax. And so Jesus says, show me a, show me a denarius. And look what Jesus asked them then. He says, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And this is exactly what a denarius would have had on it. It would have had a picture of the emperor on it, which at that point in time would have been Emperor Tiberius. And around the, the picture there, it would have had the inscription of the name of the emperor and who it was and, and other titles associated with the emperor. Look then at what Jesus does there in verse 25. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. What Jesus means by that is, is twofold. First, and you see this on your hand out there, he's saying that a portion of our money rightfully belongs to Caesar. In other words, just follow Jesus' logic here, right? If it bears his image, it belongs to him. And so then pay it to him. And so then what that means is that, is that the government, the government requires you to pay a tax, then pay the tax. If it, if it bears his image then it belongs to him. So make no bones about it, right? If the government requires you to pay a tax, you pay the tax. But what if they spend it on this? What if they do this? What if they do that? If the government requires you to pay a tax, you pay a tax. Like the government we have today pales in comparison to how evil, wicked, and unjust the government that existed in Jesus' day and Paul's day and Jesus still says, you pay the tax. But what if they spend it on things that we don't want to spend it on? Well, you're accountable to pay the tax. The government is accountable for how they spend the tax. That makes sense. You, you pay the tax. Secondly, though, what he says is that even though, though, even though a portion of our money rightfully belongs to Caesar... Secondly, he says that the entirety of our lives, though, rightfully belongs to God. In other words, just, again, follow his, 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 his logic here. If we're to give to Caesar what bears his image and likeness, namely our money and our taxes, then we're to give to God what also bears his image and his likeness, which is what? Us! Our, our lives. And so, so most scholars believe that like Jesus is doing like a little word play here. That, that again, a portion of our money belongs to Caesar because it bears his image. But the entirety of our lives belong to God because we bear his image. In this way then, Caesar and his claim on our lives, it's limited it's, it's limited to just a, a few coins. But God and his claim on our lives, it's unlimited. It's like everything because his image is, 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 is bared upon 
belongs to, is bared upon our lives. What that means then, think about it this way, if you want to think about it this way. If it's a sin to withhold taxes from the U.S. Treasury, taxes that rightfully belong to them, how much more of a sin is it to withhold anything in our lives from God? Because everything in our lives belongs to him. And he has much more. His authority transcends the U.S. Treasury. And so think about that then, right? What is it in your life as you bear the image of God, what is it that belongs to him, which is everything, that you're withholding back from him, that you're not rendering to him, that you're not giving to him. Maybe, maybe your work, maybe your career, maybe your, your job, maybe your future plans, maybe your dreams, maybe your desires, maybe your, your family, maybe your singleness, maybe your preferences, maybe your, your time, maybe your calendar, maybe your, your relationships with others, maybe a ministry, maybe, maybe money and, and resources, your worship, your, your affections, like all of it. Render to God what belongs to God, what belongs to Him. Everything. And that's the first question the Jewish, leader, Jewish leaders ask Jesus. It's a question about taxes. And he uses that as an opportunity to talk about a whole lot more than just taxes. Second question then has to do with, it's a question about the resurrection. This is what we see next in verses 27 through 40. That within this passage you have another group of Jews, Jewish leaders, come up to Jesus to try and stump him and trick him with a question. And this time, that Jewish group are the Sadducees. And there's a lot of, that we could talk about when it comes to the Sadducees, but the most important thing to know about the Sadducees is that they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in the immortality of the soul. They believe that when somebody dies, their soul does not continue, and there is no resurrection that... that that is to come, instead that person literally ceases to exist. And so then in verse 28 here, you have this group of Sadducees, they come up to Jesus with this crazy, kind of far out there, hypothetical question and scenario. And the reason, again, they bring up this hypothetical scenario is they want to try and stump Jesus, but more importantly what they're trying to do is to try and show Jesus how ridiculous and absurd the whole idea of a resurrection is. And, and that whole scenario then that they ask him about, which we're going to look at here in just a minute, comes from this common practice of the day known as leverate, leverate marriage. And the way that that worked is, is that if you're a man and your brother is married to a woman, and that woman dies without a child, then you're obligated to marry that woman and to, to produce an offspring. And the reason for that is so that the family line would continue and so that that woman would have children and that would be able to care for that woman and provide for that woman, especially as she continued to get older. And so then the Sadducees come up with this like crazy scenario that's related to this common practice of 
levirate marriage. And their scenario is this, and I'm not going to read it through again, but their scenario is of a woman marrying a man, and that man dies, and that woman is still childless. So she goes off and she marries that man's brother, and that man's brother dies, and she's still childless. So she marries the third brother, and the third brother dies, and the woman's still childless, and the fourth brother, and he dies, and the fifth brother, and he dies, and the sixth brother, and seventh. And you would think along the way, like after it gets about the third brother, that all these other brothers would figure out, if I marry that woman, I'm going to die, and they wouldn't marry. You know what I mean? Like, that's the... Anyway, Jesus doesn't even get into that. But anyway, and so all seven of these brothers are, are dead, right? And the, she still doesn't have a, have, a, have a kid here. And so some of y'all like just got the joke like 10 minutes later. But anyway, so, and, and so the Sadducees come up with this question. All right. If the resurrection is true, then in the resurrection, like after, after everybody's dead, in the, in the, in the afterlife... If she had married all 70 of these brothers during her time here on earth, then in the afterlife, which one of these seven brothers is she going to be married to? And again, the, the whole purpose in creating this scenario and bringing all this up is they're trying, to tr- they're trying to trip Jesus up and to show him how ridiculous and absurd this whole idea of a, of a resurrection is. They want Jesus to say, huh, I've never thought of that. I, I, I don't know the answer to your question. Like, there's no way she could be married to all seven of them. You're right. I guess the resurrection isn't true. And if he said that, like, that would kind of put him in a little bind a tad bit, you know? And so he, that's, what, that's what they were trying to do. And so then look at how Jesus responds to this crazy scenario that they bring up. We see their response there in in verses 34 through verse 40. And his response is twofold. First, he tells them, you see the sign hand up. He tells them that we won't be married in the afterlife. In other words, he's saying the whole premise behind your crazy, silly scenario and your question, the, the whole premise behind it is completely false. It's completely irrelevant. In other words, they want to know, okay, in the resurrection, which of these brothers is, is the woman going to be married to? And his response is, that's a nice question. Thanks for trying to trip me up. But guess what? There's no marriage in the afterlife, so your question's completely irrelevant. Next. And that's, that's his response. And I know as soon as some of you hear that, you're like, but what about this great hunk of a guy I'm sitting next to? You mean I'm not going to be married to him in the afterlife? You may not just get, ah! you know, and I just ruined everything. You're not going to hear anything I'm going to say the rest of the sermon because you're going to be stuck on the, the, the wonderful dude you married that you're not going to be married to in the, in, the, in the resurrection. And so I don't have time to like preach a sermon on that. But if you have questions about that, you can see Mike Sanders um, after... <laughs> After we're done. And so, but here's the reason. This isn't the only reason, but this is one of the reasons. Okay, not the only reason, but one of the reasons Jesus gives for why we won't be married in in the afterlife. And he says, 
He says, and this is one of the reasons, okay? Not the only reason, please hear that. He says, one of the reasons we won't be married in the afterlife is because in the afterlife, we're going we're gonna to be equal to angels. And so what that does not mean is we're not going to become angels. He's not saying we're going to become angels. He's not saying we're, not, he's not saying we're going to become angels. He's not saying we're going to become angels, okay? That's not what he's, he's saying. But he's saying we're going to be like them. And in the, what he's talking about within the context is that we're never going to die. We're going to continue to just keep on keeping on forever in the, in the, after the, in the resurrection, after the resurrection, in the afterlife. We're just going to continue to live on. There's not going to be any more death. And so follow the logic here, right? What's that have to do with not, no marriage in the afterlife? Here, here's the logic. If we're never going to die in the afterlife, then there's not going to be a need to replenish the earth and be fruitful and multiply. And since there's no need to replenish the earth and be fruitful and multiply, then there's no need for marriage. That's part of the logic, not the only, but it's one of the reasons for why there's not going to be marriage in the afterlife. So that's the first response he gives to this crazy, silly scenario she's bringing up about the resurrection. Second response then he gives is this. You see this on your hand up there. God is the God of the living and not the dead. God is the God of the living, not the dead. This is what we see. Look at verse 37 there. Jesus says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So what Jesus is referring back to here. Every, I'm just telling you right now, like this isn't the, the passage. Like this is the passage where you, your brain's got to be fully engaged, right? I mean, this is like Jesus using hard logic here in getting to a lot of points and answering a lot of these questions. And here's another example of that. But what Jesus is referring to in verse 37 38, he's referring back to Exodus chapter 3 and the whole burning bush episode between God and, and Moses. And so if you remember there, God introduces himself to Moses um, at this encounter at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 as, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's interesting about that is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the time of the burning bush episode, they had been dead for quite some time. But even though they're dead and have been dead for a long time, God still says that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is present tense. He doesn't say he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob past tense, like was when, when they were alive. Instead, he says he is still their God right now, present tense, even though they've been dead for a long, 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 long time. Which then presents a conundrum for the Sadducees. Because the Sadducees don't believe in the immortality of the soul, meaning that the soul continues on after the person dies, they believe the soul ceases to exist, and they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so then, if that's true, if the Sadducees are true in what they believe about the immortality of the soul and the resurrection 
of the dead. Then Jesus' question is, how can God be the God of three people who don't exist? And do you know what his answer is? They do exist. They do exist. Yes, their physical bodies have died, but their souls have continued to exist. And the reason that their souls have continued to exist is because there is coming a day in which their bodies will be physically resurrected from the dead and their physical bodies that have been resurrected will be reunited with their souls and they will dwell and live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. He doesn't unpack all that right there, but he will unpack that in verses to come. And that's the encouragement we have for, as Christians as well. That the route, we're banking everything on this. Like the, the Sadducees question is an important question for every single one of us here in this room. That everything we believe, everything that we're looking forward to, every hope that we have is tied directly to the resurrection. Particularly, it brings hope to those within our congregation, within our church who are suffering who are walking through pain, who are walking through suffering, who are walking through difficulty, whether that's physical suffering, emotional suffering, relational suffering, financial difficulty, whatever that might be. That the hope that we have is that there is coming a day in which we will be physically resurrected from the dead and we will live forever in a new heavens and a new earth. I love D.A. Carson. He's a New Testament scholar. He, he gave a quote one time that I've like memorized to the core, because it is helpful when it comes to the hope of the resurrection and the significance of the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection when it comes to all of our lives, particularly that when we walk through difficulty and struggles and hardships and all those things. He once said this. He said, there is nothing that I'm going through. He's talking about himself, but he's talking about all of us who are Christians. He says, there's nothing that I'm going through in this life that a good resurrection won't fix. And that is good. Like that is, that's not just, that is biblical. And, and that's a good word, right? That's a good perspective to have. Like no matter what you're going through, I mean, physical pain, emotional just turmoil and trauma inside of you, financial difficulties, relational just, ah, uh, or just the weight of stress of life that is just bearing you down and you just don't know how you can continue to keep on keeping on that it doesn't matter what you're going through, that there isn't anything that you're going through that a good resurrection, like the resurrection, won't ultimately fix and that won't ultimately heal that. And that's the hope that we have. Like, the reality is this. As Christians, we might suffer for the rest of our lives. Whatever you're going through right now, you might have to endure that and bear the weight of that for the rest of your life. But the good news, because of the resurrection, you're not going to have to endure that forever. Forever in this life? You might have to endure it for this long, but you're not going to have to endure it for infinity long, right? There's nothing you're going through that the resurrection won't fix. Instead, one day, our, our physical bodies are going to be raised right alongside Abraham's, right alongside Isaac's, and right alongside Jacob's. And we're going to be given new 
glorified bodies, and we're going to dwell with them and dwell together in a new heavens and a new earth. Third, then, tricky question is this. And, and this third question, Jesus turns the tables. Up to this point, it's the Jewish leaders asking tricky questions. Now Jesus turns around on him, and he asks them a tricky question. And their tricky question, see this on your handout, it revolves around the identity of Jesus. And so again, this is a question he's going to present that it's going to be, man, yeah, get your thinking cap on because this isn't going to be easy um, following his logic here. But we see his question there in verse 41. Look there, Luke writes this, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? So we know this, right? Old Testament teaches this um, all throughout. We see this all throughout the New Testament as well, that everyone believed, the Old Testament teaches, that, that the Messiah was to be a descendant from the line of King David. And so that's what Jesus is referring to there in verse 41. How can they say that the Christ, the Messiah, is David's son? In light of that then, look at the tricky question he poses beginning in verse 42. He quotes a verse from Psalm 110 verse 1. And this verse is taken straight from the lips of King David. And Jesus says in verse 42, For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the end, th th thinking cap time, right? This, this is David. He's quoting David here. So this is David speaking there at the beginning of verse 42, right? Look what he says. The Lord meaning the Lord God, God the Father. So that's who that is, the Lord, God the Father. Said to my, my is David. So God the Father said to David's Lord. So do you know who that Lord is? Within context, that Lord is specifically a reference to the Christ, the Messiah, that was going to come from the line of David. As a result then, here's the question Jesus poses. Look at verse 44. David thus calls him Lord, meaning the Messiah Lord. So how is he his son? In other words, how is the Messiah both David's son and David's Lord? That's a great question. Because I don't know about you, but I, I love Jacob over here, but I've never ever called him my Lord. He, he's my son. I've never called my son my Lord. And I will never <laughs> call my son my, my Lord. Lord Jacob, you know, no, that's, that's never going to, it's never going to happen. So, so that's the question Jesus is, is posing here. How can, how can the Messiah both be David's son and also David's Lord? And he doesn't give the answer here. He just kind of leaves it as this rhetorical question to kind of stump them and to leave them in this, this conundrum there. But if we keep reading right in the rest of the Gospel of Luke, then we discover the answer. We, we find out that just in a few days that David's son, Jesus, is going to go die on a cross. And three days after he dies on a cross, he's going to be resurrected from the dead. And after he's resurrected from the dead, that he's going to ascend to heaven. 
And when he ascends to heaven, he's going to do what? He's going to fulfill exactly what David prophesied and talked about in Psalm 110, verse 1. He's going to ascend to heaven, and he's going to sit down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And the reason he's going to sit down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty is he's going to sit down to be enthroned as king. He's going to sit down to reign and rule as the sovereign king and the sovereign lord of the universe. And like, think about that, right? That's what he's doing right now. Like Jesus sitting up there just like twiddling his thumbs. Well, okay, was it time to get, are we there yet? Is it, is it time to get back down there yet? Like, he's he not just, just sitting up there like on the edge of a seat, just, just fretting, hoping, hoping everything turns up out okay down here and that we figure things out and things don't get too bad down here and we're able to stop this and get this figured out. And, like, he, he's not worried about any of that stuff. Instead, he's up there. He's not up there twiddling his thumbs. He's not up there fretting. He's up there reigning. He's up there ruling as the sovereign king, as the sovereign lord of the universe. So those are three tricky questions then that, that we learn about, right? Jewish leaders come, ask Jesus about it. Jesus turns it, about, turns it around on them. And they, they present topics and issues of government and taxes, of resurrection and afterlife, of the identity of who Jesus is, and, and all these things that are, that are important for our lives today. In response then to those tricky questions, Jesus then offer this, offers this one serious warning to these Jewish leaders who've been asking him these questions and trying to stump him with these questions. And we see this warning in verse 45. Look there with me. Luke writes this, And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes. The scribes are some of those who've been asking him some of these questions. The scribes are, are those who are the religious scholars, the religious teachers in Jesus' day. And Jesus huddles his disciples together and he's like, Beware of them. Be on the lookout for them. Beware of them. And here's why they need to beware of the scribes. Look at how he describes the scribes in the rest of verse 46. This is why he wants them to be beware of them. Look at how he describes them. Who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. And then look at what Jesus says is going to happen to these deeply religious, seemingly pious, wealthy, religious scholars, religious teachers of his day. He says at the very end of verse 47, they will receive the greater condemnation. I can't even describe how shocking that would have been to the ears of his disciples. Now, shocking that it would have been to the ears of anybody who would have heard Jesus utter these words. I mean, I mean, think about it. The scribes. Like, these are the religious scholars of the day. These are the religious teachers of the day. Like one's wealth in that day signified that God's favor rested upon them. These dudes were rich. They were wealthy, so God's favor responded. Religious scholars, religious teachers, God's favor, best seats in the synagogue, right? So the most 
pious, the most righteous people, the most devoted people. They prayed long, flowering prayers of the most, the most righteous people. Like if God's favor was upon any group, it would have been upon them. And here you have Jesus saying, that group, and just of all groups, they're going to receive the greater condemnation. And whatever you do, disciples, beware of those people. Don't follow after them. Don't become like them. I can't describe how shocking that would have been to anybody who would have heard that. But do you see why he gives that warning? Do you, do you see why he says they're going to see the greater combination of all people? Don't follow. Beware of those people. They're hypocrites. They're filled with hypocrisy. On the outside, what do they do? They look like they love God. They look like they're devoted to God. They look like God's favor rests upon them. They look the part. But on the inside, they don't care about God's glory. They don't care about God's honor. They don't care about God's praise. All they care about on the inside is their own glory. All they care about on their own inside is being recognized by others, being esteemed by others, to be seen as, as prominent, to be seen as successful, to be esteemed and affirmed and honored and recognized and be exalted in the eyes of others. And so when, when, it, when Jesus describes this in regards to the scribes, this looks really ugly, right? Like this looks like just we roll our eyes and we're like, how could, the, how could people be like them? Like, yeah, condemn them. Get them. Destroy them, Jesus. They're bad people. Yeah, those hypocrites. Glad I'm not like those people. We are all like these people. I mean, we're not immune to any of that. Like that temptation, I mean, with the way Jesus describes it, again, it looks really ugly, but it's so subtle. It's so subtle. The temptation of this is so subtle. Like it's not like any of us, I don't think, wake up in the morning and think, today I'm seeking after my own glory. Everything I do today, I'm going to do it so others will recognize me, so others will affirm me, so others will esteem me, so they'll see me that I'm successful, I'm somebody in this life, and I want everybody to see it, and I want everybody to know it, and I want everybody to recognize it in me. I don't think most of us are waking up consciously, that's how we're going to spend our day. But what I wholeheartedly believe is that this is a subtle temptation subconsciously in all of our hearts. That it's amazing how often the words that we speak, the decisions we make, how we carry ourselves in our relationships with people, how so much of that, if you just want to trace it back to the root and the core, of why we do some of the crazy things we do and why we say some of the things we say. It's because we're pursuing our own glory. It's selfish ambition. 
it's we want to try and validate ourselves in the eyes of others and prove ourselves in the eyes of others that we're somebody. And we want them to recognize it and validate it for us. Now, I know, like, we like to give this other names that it's to make it not look as bad, like people pleaser, or to say that we struggle with the approval of others and just longing for the approval of others. And the reason that we do that oftentimes is because that doesn't sound as bad as I'm pursuing my own glory. But the reality is you can call it whatever you want to. People pleaser, struggle for approval. You can call it and figure out what other name you want to to try and sanitize the sin. But the reality is the heart behind it is still the same. It's a heart that craves glory. And it's a heart that craves uh, to be exalted and esteemed and to be somebody in the eyes of others that they would validate you and that they would recognize that in, in you. That's the temptation for, for all of our lives. And so for the scribes, how did that manifest itself? Probably in ways it doesn't manifest itself among us. Long robes, praying long prayers, sitting in places of honor, and on and on and on and on. For us, it manifests itself, I think, in different ways. Just the longing for power, the longing for control, the longing for a certain position or a certain title, the longing to be successful or always having to be successful, being overly competitive, always having to win, being well-known. That's all on one extreme. On the other extreme, it may manifest itself in things like fear of man, shame, self-pity, insecurity, being overly consumed with what other people think about you, being devastated by rejection or criticism from others, living in isolation from others, and on and on and on and on. That's the other extreme. However it's manifested, though, here's the point. Jesus is repulsed by it. And on your hand out there, Jesus condemns those who pursue their own glory. At the same time, though, and this is the final point, Jesus commends those who sacrificially give for the Lord's glory. And this is what we see in the very next verse of the very next chapter, in chapter 21. This chapter break here, I think, is very unfortunate because it's easy to just come to the end of chapter 20 and think, huh, okay, chapter 21, he's starting a new topic. He's not starting a new topic at all. Instead, at the end of chapter 20, he brings up uh, the, the example of the scribes that we need to beware of, and he condemns that example. And now, at the very beginning of chapter 21, he brings up this example of this poor little widow, and he, he exalts that example. And we see the, and he, the purpose for that is trying to make a contrast between the scribes and this poor little widow. And look at the contrast that he makes here, starting in verse 1 in chapter 21. Luke writes, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And so we're still in the temple complex here, and they're giving, they're, there's 13 boxes in the court of women there. They're, they're making offerings there, and, and Jesus is watching just the rich coming and, and making their offering. 
And as he sees the rich coming to make their offering into these different offering receptacles there in the the temple complex, he looks up and look at who he sees. Look at verse 2. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. These two copper coins that he's referring to here would have been the smallest coins in terms of currency uh, in circulation at the time. And so then just picture what Jesus is seeing here. He's seeing this herd of, of the rich giving, giving their offering. And in the midst of that herd, he sees this poor little widow walking up and giving her offering of these two small copper coins. Look what he says in verse 3. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Do you you see the contrast? There's a lot here. But do you see the contrast that Jesus is is making here? You you have these religiously devoted and pious scribes who who prayed long prayers, who had these long robes, who had the best seats in the synagogue, and they were extremely wealthy, sign of God's blessing, sign of God's favor. And how does Jesus respond to them? They're going to be condemned. Beware of them. Don't follow same time, you have this poor little widow, which in the society and the context of that day, it would have been considered an outcast, would have been considered one of the lowest of the lows. And how does Jesus respond to her? She's not wearing a long robe. She's not giving a whole lot of money. She didn't have a best seat in the synagogue. She doesn't have any of that stuff. She didn't have wealth as a sign of God's favor, a sign of God's blessing. She just had two little small copper coins. And how does Jesus respond to her? He condemns those people, and he commends her for her small, little, meager, humble gift. And in doing so, he tells his disciples, don't be like them, be like like her. And think about that, right? When it comes to the example of this poor widow, think about that. This is the hard part of the sermon. And think about the implications of Jesus using her as a model and example for for all of us in terms of our heart attitude, in terms of our giving, in terms of our generosity, and also in terms of how God views our giving and how God views our, our generosity. We can learn a whole lot from this poor little widow when it comes to giving and when it comes to generosity. And more than anything, what she teaches us is this is that God is more concerned with the sacrifice of our gift than the amount amount which we give. God is more concerned with the sacrifice of our gift than the amount with which we give. Or another way to say it is this, God doesn't measure, so God's value system, his scale, he, he doesn't measure our generosity by the amount of gift we give. He measures our generosity by the amount of sacrifice by which we give what we give. What that means then is that it's possible in God's economy for a $2 gift in that offering box back there to be more valuable in God's sight than a $2 million gift in that offering box. If you want to give a $2 million gift, that's, that's good. Uh, We'll take it. But anyway, in God's God's economy, though, that's, that's the point here. If 
There's a strong if here. If that $2 gift is given out of one's sacrifice and that $2 million gift is given out of one's abundance. That's how God evaluates giving. What that means then is that if you're desperately poor and you're like, well, what's $1 going to mean to the life of this church? doesn't matter what it's going to mean in the life of this church. What it matters is what it means in God's economy and how he evaluates your gift and, and your generosity. Your $1 gift, once a week, once a month, could be more valuable in God's sight than the $1,000 gift every week or whatever that might be. Those are just examples. It doesn't matter the amount of the gift. It matters what the sacrifice of the gift is. That's the example that we get in the poor little widow that she gives us. But what I love about all this is that as good of an example as the poor little widow is here in terms of her generosity, in terms of her sacrificial giving, as good of an example as she is, we have a much better example in Jesus. And that's what we remember now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Why don't you stand with me? That each week at the end of our sermon, we transition our sermon time into the Lord's Supper And we do that for a reason, that we want to tie and show how every passage of Scripture, no matter if we're talking about giving financially, or whether we're talking about taxes, or whether we're talking about the resurrection, or whether we're talking about religious hypocrites, we want to show how every passage of Scripture that we go to, how it ultimately is demonstrated and how it ultimately is tied to Jesus, and how it's ultimately tied to Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross in our place and his his subsequent resurrection from the dead. That Jesus wasn't like those religious scribes. He He didn't stay in heaven wearing long robes, having the best seat in the house, praying long prayers, and hoping we'd figure it out some way down here. Instead, he, he took off the robe of glory. He took off the best seat in the house. And he sacrificed everything, just like this poor little widow. And he came to this earth not to exalt and to toot his own horn, not to be esteemed and to be somebody to be seen and exalted in the lives of others. He didn't come here to be exalted like the scribes. He came here to die and to sacrifice like the poor little widow. And it's through then our faith in this Jesus and His sacrifice and His substitutionary death on the cross in our place and His resurrection from the dead that we can be rescued from our sin, penalty, and punishment that we deserve for our sin. And that we can be confident that one day, along with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that we too will be resurrected on the resurrection All of that is true, not because we follow the example of the poor little widow, but all of that is true because Jesus followed the example of the poor little widow. And our faith and our trust is in him for our salvation. And so that's what we remember as Christians this morning as we come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. That the bread is symbolic of Jesus' body, the cup is symbolic of Jesus' blood that was spilt for us as our substitute 
on the cross. That if that's your hope, if that's your trust, if that's what you're relying upon and relying upon exclusively alone to be reconciled to God and to be saved and rescued from the judgment you deserve because of your sin and your only hope for the resurrection is Jesus, then we gladly invite you to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. If that's not you, if you have questions about this, if if you don't believe this, if you're not sure about this, then we just ask that you abstain from this portion of our service. You observe just what's going on and what we're celebrating. Um, but this portion um, is for those who, are, who have trusted in Christ and that what we're celebrating outwardly, we're trusting and believing inwardly.